Coming up on Philosophy Talk. 2020, the examined year. What happened in 2020 that challenged our assumptions and made us think about things in new ways? What didn't happen in 2020 to challenge our assumptions and make us think about things in new ways? There isn't an element of make-believe to them. The year in misinformation and conspiracy theories. This fantasy world is what gives people meaning. The year in virtual learning and communication. Teaching, even if it's happening online, can help respond to a psychological pressure that we are experiencing right now. The year in pandemic ethics. People feel more comfort with their behaviors and maybe even are taking greater risks than they used to, although that certainly doesn't mean those behaviors are okay or that their risk-taking is rational. Join us as we try to shed philosophical light on ideas and events from a year like no other. It's the examined year, 2020. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We've had quite a year, haven't we, Ray? You joined me as co-host? And then when COVID hit, we had to rethink the whole production so we could record from home. But here we are, still talking with fascinating guests about equally fascinating philosophical topics, from money to meritocracy. From politics to pets. Now we need your help to keep Philosophy Talk on the air and online. So please consider making a donation to support the show. So we can continue to question everything. Except your intelligence. Why not do your part to promote curiosity, reason, and open-mindedness? Just go to philosophytalk.org and click donate at the top of the page. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you for supporting Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. We're coming to you from our respective living rooms via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, it's a special edition of Philosophy Talk, the examined year 2020, a look back at the philosophical significance of events and ideas that have shaped the past 12 months. Because the unexamined year is not worth reviewing. Yeah, although you might want to make that case for 2020. Well, sure, between the pandemic and the election, this year has been quite the test for truth here in the U.S. Later in the show, we'll think about the year in misinformation and conspiracy theories with Tamsin Shaw, professor of philosophy at NYU. Never mind truth. What about just life in general? So many of our interactions with other people have gone online this year, including all the teaching that you and I have been doing. So we're going to think about the year in virtual learning and communication with Iris Berendt, Professor of Psychology at Northeastern University. And in just a bit, we'll check in with Karen Storr from Georgetown. She joined us earlier in the year to help tackle your COVID conundrums. So we'll ask her about the year in pandemic ethics. Not everything that happened in 2020 was terrible. Millions marched for the rights of black Americans. A record number of US citizens turned out to vote. And one of our favorite poets, Louise Glick, won the Nobel Prize for Literature. We'll be hearing some of her amazing poems later in the show. Still, the coronavirus really did dominate the year like nothing in recent memory. In fact, librarians and archivists have been relying on people around the country to submit photos, drawings, and diary entries to document the pandemic so that future generations can understand what we all went through. Here in San Francisco, KLW radio producers asked people to submit audio diaries. Our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, brings us an excerpt from that project. Today is day 81. My name is Omalade. 
Rosalind Roddy. I live in Oakland, California. I am a psychotherapist. Right now I'm in Los Angeles. I traveled down here to spend time with my mother who has been isolated. She would be considered one of the vulnerable populations. My family came to California to escape Jim Crow and Klan's folks and racism of the South. However, my family talks about what they traded for the South as far as urban life and the things that family members were exposed to, but especially the police brutality. A week before I left, George Floyd was murdered. In talking with my mom on my way up here, I knew that this was triggering for her. My mother grew up in what I call Black Los Angeles. She grew up in Watts. We often talk about the murders of family members that have been unjust and at the hands of police officers. So when I arrive, we talk and we talk a lot. We've been talking a lot. And I can see that she's feeling better. She's feeling better just to be able to have someone to talk to and to touch and to hold, but also to be heard. It really feels good to be heard. So today's day 81. I'm a shift manager at a grocery store in Sacramento. Here in Sacramento, we've got a curfew in effect through at least Sunday. I've got a note in my wallet. Basically, it's a letter on company letterhead saying that, you know, a person carrying this note is an essential worker. Um, when I first saw this note, <laughs> you know... 81 days ago um i was envisioning like national guard stopping people on the highway and thinking that that wasn't really going to happen um but with the curfew it feels like more of a possibility my name is carmen aguirre and today is day 82. i am a public defender in san francisco and i just returned from the office where we gathered to create some signs for protests for tomorrow. And I was thinking about the last time that we as San Francisco public defenders staged a protest, which was after the shooting death of Mario Woods by San Francisco police. And I remember feeling the same way, really angry and really sad. And this just feels so powerful, what's happening right now. I mean, it feels like it's the the spark and, and everything's just doused in gasoline. It's just infectious. It feels incredibly exciting that we might have conversations about changing the criminal justice system. The mayor's talking about diverting money away from the police department. I would have never guessed I would have seen something like this. You know, I think the United States is having a real reckoning and it's about damn time. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks for that very moving segment, Holly. 
That report was part of Day by Day Quarantine Diaries from KALW's news magazine, Cross Currents. I'm Josh Landy, here with my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs, and we're taking a philosophical look at the past 12 months. It's the examined year 2020. As the pandemic took hold last spring, we asked you to send us your COVID conundrums, practical ethical problems in your daily lives related to the new reality. And we invited an ethicist onto the program to help think them through. Karen Storr, professor of philosophy at Georgetown University and senior research scholar at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics. Since March, Karen has also been writing a coronavirus ethics column for the Washingtonian magazine. So we asked her whether she'd seen any changes in the COVID conundrums people have been raising over the course of the year. My sense is that the ethical questions have not changed all that much, although as we've learned more about the virus and have more experience with it, our sort of comfort level with our answers might have changed. Um, but I think now my sense is that people have now sort of gotten used to it in some ways and they've decided how it is that they're going to live with the virus. And then we're just sort of seeing how that plays out. And how is it playing out? <laughs> I think, well, with rising case numbers everywhere, um, maybe not so well. The nation is very polarized around lots of issues. Who knew that mask wearing was going to become the central ethical issue of 2020 um, or one of the central ethical issues? And I think that that has made it more difficult for us to figure out, for instance, how we're going to handle things like holiday travel, people's very real desires to see their family members, to celebrate holidays that matter to them, and at the same time, keep everyone safe and trying to impose excessive risk on others, I think we have even greater need to be able to come together and work out how we can do these activities or not do them safely, but maybe also less energy and less willingness to come together around those questions. So I think that's a bit of a problem. So you suggested earlier that everybody had kind of settled on a personal approach and is now just acting it out. Uh, it sounds like maybe there's more that we should be doing ethically. What does the more look like? Well, I think that, you know, as we all know, humans are really bad at calculating risk. And I suspect that many of us, and I think I'm in this, um, this category as well, um, are probably taking more risk than we might have back in March. And that's probably irrational because for most of us, we're living um, with higher caseloads than ever before. Um, but I think that this idea that everyone is like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to go to the gym or I'm going to you know, see my friends that I think now that we figured out our way of living with this. And for many people, this seems to have worked out okay because they haven't gotten COVID or maybe their friends or family members haven't. And so I think people feel more comfort with their behaviors and maybe even are taking greater risks than they used to. Although that certainly doesn't mean that those behaviors are okay or that their risk taking is rational. But I think that this is potentially a problem because it also makes people probably less willing to engage in reflection and rethinking of their own behaviors. So that's interesting the way you phrase that, people taking risks, because the framing we often get, especially from the government, is about uh, risk-taking versus bravery. Like, you know, don't be a coward, take your mask off, go out there and start licking things, you know. And <laughs> You know, instead of it being framed as considerateness, um, it's being framed as a question of courage, right? So don't wear a mask, be courageous, as opposed to do wear a mask, be considerate, because it's not just risk for me. 
if I don't wear a mask, it's I'm endangering other people. Do you think there's, do you, is, have we gotten any better? Have we gotten worse on this front? I suspect we've gotten worse. Although I think mass compliance, from what I can tell, may have gotten better in many parts of the country. But I think that the people who don't want to more wear masks are digging in. And I think that's a great analysis of why. For reasons that are really unclear to me, or at least partly unclear, I think that mask wearing has been associated or attached to a certain kind of weakness. Also, I think you're right that it's associated with a kind of femininity, um, which um, many people who identify as male want to reject. Um, and so there is that kind of like, I'm tough, the virus can't get me, I'm stronger than the virus, I don't need this mask, masks are for weaklings. How people square this with the fact that you know, everyone in an operating room is wearing a mask. There are all kinds of people who wear masks routinely. I don't know. The significance of setting up as much as we can social norms and getting people to comply with them is, I think, understated. And it certainly goes out the window when people are shouting about their freedom not to wear masks. I mean, I find it puzzling. I, I think people don't see, well, you're not free to, you know, walk into a grocery store without clothes on. Um, so it's not as if, you know, nobody can enforce any kinds of rules about what pieces of fabric are on your body. But I think that is a problem. And it's even worse when people not just sort of don't want to wear masks themselves, but berate or mock people who are wearing masks um, for excellent reasons. And I think that dynamic has gotten worse over the course of 2020. I also have a question about how we reach people who are less hostile to mask wearing, but maybe irrational in sort of smaller ways. So I, one thing I've seen a lot of is, well, you know, I, I did everything in a safe and conscientious manner. So my family holiday gathering was okay because everybody was safe and careful and six feet apart. Uh, sort of whether or not being six feet apart in an indoor area is actually effective. Do you have thoughts about how to guard against that kind of mistake? I think this is a really tough one because it is very difficult for us to see our loved ones as threats to us. And one of the challenges is sort of putting ourselves in the mindset of thinking, yes, even this person who I love dearly might be the one to give me a serious illness or vice versa. I might be a threat to them. We see strangers as the ones who are threatening us. And so people get very worried about passing encounters with strangers and not at all worried about having dinner with 16 of their close friends in their dining room with the windows closed. But I think there is also a lot of magical thinking that's like, okay, well, I'm sure I don't really, I'm sure I don't have it. Um, particularly with people who are asymptomatic, I feel fine, right? There's no way. Or I haven't been anywhere. Wait, except for the grocery store. And yeah, I did run a Home Depot for that thing. You know, we do a lot of rationalization to ourselves to sort of give us reasons for doing what it is that we want to do. And, you know, the quarantining takes sacrifice. And that is, for lots of us, a difficult thing to do. And when the stakes aren't immediately apparent to us, then I think it becomes harder to make the sacrifice because it's just this vague sacrifice for people we've never met. And what we're trying to protect them from is something that people aren't even exactly sure how it works or how it's transmitted because they're either not keeping up with the science or the science is just unclear as it evolves. Um, and I think all those things make it really hard for people to see this as the kind of risk that it is and for to see themselves, us to see ourselves as potential vectors of illness and potentially causing harm to other people. So Karen, as I look back on the year, you know, I, uh, there are a couple of things that particularly demoralize me about 
our collective response to uh, the COVID outbreak, the pandemic. One of which is, you know, it's the epidemic of uh, coronavirus. Was, it was accompanied by an epidemic of thoughtlessness. I mean, j just folks at least apparently seeming not to care about uh, the potential damage they were going to be doing uh, to the rest of our lives. And, and that sort of relatedly, uh, a willingness in some quarters to say, you know what, if grandma has to die, so be it. We can't sacrifice the economy. Uh, people are just going to have to die, which struck me as, a, as at least somewhat callous. So, so I guess my question for you is, you know, has it been like this all along? I mean, the, you know, that to me, maybe I'm a naive person, but that to me felt like the revelation of some really troubling aspect of our moral landscape that I hadn't been aware of, that these sort of feelings of uh, indifference to some extent to the suffering of others are, are so profound and widespread? Or am I mistaken about that? I mean, have they always been there? Well, I suspect they have. Um, it's just they're more explicit now, I think. You know, I think part of the problem is that we don't have a good way of talking about the trade-offs and the risks. Um, the way in which people are like, well, you know, if you're just elderly or you know immune compromised, just stay home, as if that's a good solution as well. I think we do see a fair bit of callousness that I suspect was always there, but wasn't always socially acceptable to express. And now it has a cover because people can say, but look, you know, look at the ways in which the economy is suffering and small business owners. And so there's an easier way to sort of draw the comparison, but it it is certainly callous. On the other hand, I think there are ways in which we've seen tremendous amounts of cooperation. I mean, I don't think there's any question that the work that a lot of healthcare providers are doing um, is just nothing short of heroic. But this idea that like when people look around and see others being selfish, I think that's become palpable to us in a way that it wasn't before. You know, a, a lot of organizations are using this, you know, we're all in this together. And I think a lot of people, including a lot of young people, I certainly hear this from my own teenagers and my students, are like, no, we're not. There's a lot of people who are just doing whatever they want and they just see them as selfish. And I and there's a lot of resentment. And I suspect that is going to outlast the pandemic for a while. And I don't know what to do about that. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.